What's up, Seamus? Hey, what's up, Will? So we sat down with Dr. Kulreet Chaudhary, and she's an integrative neurologist, a neuroscientist, and Ayurvedic practitioner. And she's the author of a really fascinating book called Sound Medicine. Yeah. I mean, we're going to talk about all the different ways that sound impacts our brain, the science behind it, and how sound can possibly have the potential to improve our physical and mental well-being. And I don't think it's that much of a stretch to say that most of us can wrap our head around the idea of sound or music having a calming effect on our body or perhaps the opposite, you know, mm-hmm. uh, death metal might not exactly make you feel comfortable, but might get you <laughs> amped up to go out and whoop some ass. But the idea that sound can actually heal us on, right. on, on a biological level is really, really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, she teaches us so much. We learn about the science of sound the different mechanisms that they're exploring in the research of how sound can be healing. So it's a great conversation. All right, let's jump in with Dr. Kulreet Chaudhary. Hi, Kulreet. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. This is a really, you know, I love the title of your book, Sound Medicine. Thank you. Because when I picked it up without reading the subtitle, which is How to Use the Ancient Science of Sound to Heal the Body and Mind, I just looked at this and was like, sound medicine. I can can relate to that. (laughs) That sounds good. That sounds good. I didn't even realize that it was at first (laughs) when I picked it up what I was getting into. But anyway, can you tell us a little bit about what sound medicine is and, you know, and, and where it's come from and how you as a doctor of Western medicine, has now kind of moved into a different world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let me break up the answers to all of those. (laughs) So what is sound medicine? Um, Sound medicine is really just a recognition that sound affects us. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that we really have to convince you know, people or society about because you see all the ways in which sound is used because, you know, it people know that it affects us. Mm -hmm. So I always, you know, tell people, could you imagine a um, movie without a soundtrack, Mm -hmm. right? The difference in the experience or when you go to the gym, most people are listening to some kind of music to pump them up, you know, do the exercise. And so sound medicine is essentially just using the technology of sound deliberately for the Mm -hmm. upliftment um, of the mind and uh, the body. And so the, the the book came about as I was, um, you know, doing my um, work that I'm doing right now in India, which I would kind of describe as a medical anthropology um, project. And I was just absolutely stunned at how much sound was used um, in medical treatments in ancient civilizations, and not mm-hmm. just in India, but in almost every ancient medical civilization People mm-hmm. were treated with um, sound therapies in addition to, you know, other other types of interventions like herbs and so forth. But this was a well understood technology, and it wasn't just li- it wasn't just limited to medicine either. They mm-hmm. used it in agriculture. Um, they used it in dealing with, um, you know, the weather. They used it um, in um, social ceremonies because they understood that the impact that it had on both the mind and the body. Mm-hmm. I feel like I left out the answer to one question. No, you don't answered worry. We'll get, we'll, we will get back to it. Yeah, <laughs> I love I love this concept of sound as a technology. It's something I've never really thought of before, mm-hmm. and you really explore it in such a innovative way. And, and and another thing you talk about in the book is the siddha 
uh, tradition. Um, can you explain to everybody what is the Siddha uh, and how can I be a Siddha because it sounds really <laughs> awesome. And should we do a mudra? Are we going yes. <laughs> to? Oh, I'm so happy you asked me about the Siddhas. The the Siddhas were, you know, Siddha medicine, which predates Ayurvedic medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, which I think a lot of people are becoming familiar with, mm-hmm. um, is one of the ancient Indian medical system. And, um, you know, the written records go about 5,000 years. And Siddha medicine is even older than that. And um, so Siddha medicine is probably the most secretive medical system on the planet and one of the most difficult to um, access because of its just sheer power, um, their understanding of, you know, not just things like sound, but the fundamental laws of nature are just, uh, they're, they're really stunning. As we're going into these ancient records, um, which, you know, we have access to in India, and I, and I think I'm the first Western physician that has ever been pulled into a project like this. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, they were talking about the atom and subatomic particles, um, you know, 8,000 years ago. And so Siddha medicine is, it's kind of um, where the modern day field, which is ex- in its infancy state of quantum biology, it is the maturation of that thought process of how mm. do you create shifts in biology on a quantum level. And, you know, as you can imagine, when you create shifts on a quantum level, you're you're creating shifts that have an immediate effect. And so I would say, like, you know, sometimes when we look at the sci-fi movies, you know, like Star Trek mm-hmm. and so forth, and we see some of their technologies and so forth, that is kind of the closest example that we have um, to mm-hmm. what Siddha medicine would be comprised of. It's a it's a vibrational medicine, but it's an extremely technologically advanced medicine in terms of their understanding, you know, of the human body and human mind and human existence, as I said, on a vibrational level. And in terms of how do you be quite, become one, well, I will let you know when I get to that point because I, <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have spent the last two years um, which which felt like just um, you know paying my dues just to get to the point where I could start to peek into some of their knowledge and I, you get tested like crazy to be even allowed to witness um, you know this medical tradition. So a- ask me again maybe in ten years and I'm and I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping I have an answer for you. <laughs> yeah, because it seems like almost like what Kabbalah is to Judaism, Siddha is to Hinduism. Is that kind of fair to say? You know, I don't know enough about um, the Kabbalah tradition to be able to answer that question. But if it is kind of the more um, mystical aspects, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and I think we refer to mystical really as the aspects that we just don't understand. Right. Um, and so mm-hmm. on on one level, they're they're the more mystical aspects, but at the same time, they're extremely um, scientifically accurate right. in advance. And so, you know, they have um, these pictures, for example, of human anatomy, and without ever having done like dissection, they they are able, you know, they give like these detailed, detailed, you know, explanations of the human nervous system and so forth. So if, if that's what, you know, koala is, then I would say yeah, yes. Basically, that it's, that's it. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's just it's wonderful to have that combination too of you know kind of the Doctor Strange experience mm-hmm. of like you know you have the the intellect but then you have kind of this um, this secret world and it's only secret because we don't understand the science behind it but mm-hmm. have both of them come together mm-hmm. into kind of this uh, this magical magical world. 
I feel like there's there's a lot of skepticism from the Western the Western perspective on on sound healing or the use of sound and resonance in in uh, in, in Western conventional medicine. But you point out in the book that we've obviously going back all the way to the 1950s, we've been using a sonogram, we've been right. using ultrasound um, medically, not only for, res- for for imaging, but also to break apart kidney stones and things like that. Um, for you, was it was it a leap for you, or you? I mean, I I know a little bit of your background, so I know that you've been practicing <laughs> meditation for the majority of your life since you were quite young. But was it, as you went into the medical school, was it um, challenging for you to kind of rationalize these two seemingly disparate paths of, of healing? No, absolutely. Um, I was, you know, I was fortunate enough to have that background in meditation and have the exposure from my mom into Ayurvedic medicine to know that there are other perspectives and there are other pathways to approach health and well-being. Mm-hmm. But then when you dive into um, a system like medicine, which has such strong belief systems, mm-hmm. um, it's very difficult, you know, not to have that kind of taint your um, taint your mind. And so it wasn't until I actually developed migraine headaches as a neurologist mm-hmm. that I was, uh, you know, it, humility will open your mind faster sure. than anything else. It's and true. so it was the humility of me having a condition that as a neurologist, I should have been able to treat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that brought me back, you know, to my Ayurvedic roots as a patient. And the result of just a few months of intervention in the Ayurvedic world, it forced me as now a neuroscientist to accept that there are, you know, paradigms that I have to mm-hmm. be willing to explore because they worked for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's fair mm-hmm. as a physician if you find something that works for you to say, I'm not going to look into this further and offer it to my patients just because I feel kind of shy about it. Like mm-hmm. you have a responsibility mm-hmm. to right. say, wait a minute, what don't I, what don't I understand? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so you're in this exploratory phase of of medical research in India in this field of sound medicine and looking at the science of it. Can you tell us about what kind of of studies and research is being done right now? Yeah, absolutely. So we've just now finished um, building the center there, um, and it's out in rural India. And so we've just started to put the programs together. Um, And so every single day, for example, our guests actually begin their treatments, and these are actual medical treatments um, from the Siddha lineage and from the Ayurvedic perspective. Um, But we start with a uh, sound bath where we have, um, you know, one of our practitioners actually chants these uh, extremely ancient, they're over 8,000 years old, uh, Tamil um, mantras. And so then they go into their treatments and so forth. And so right now we're looking at just case studies. Uh, for example, you know, we've had uh, patients come on with different uh, types of cancers. And so we're looking at them case by case of how are they responding to the medications. Um, but what we want to be doing, you know, as we build momentum, and again, we're still very young, just a few months, um, you know, having opened the center. My goal, though, is to really look at genetic transcription and see the ways in which genes change in response um, to exposure to sound. And we have some, um, you know, we have some preliminary studies, which I mentioned in the book that already show that sound can change genes. And I'd really like to look at how the different mantras change to genetic expression. 
And initially mm-hmm. I thought like, how, you know, how am I going to do this? Like mm-hmm. how in rural India? Well, three and a half hours away from our center is one of the largest like biotech companies that, you know, has the technology. I mean, India is just amazing in some of the biotech research that they've done. And so all of a sudden what seemed like kind of a fantastical idea um, is extremely, extremely accessible. So that's that's one of the areas of my interest that I will be pushing for. Mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. that. Yeah. You also you have this fascinating concept in the book that you you refer to as the basis of all biology being sound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you explain that? I mean, that's a fascinating concept. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the 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 challenge with a new technology is if you don't have the science for it, you can't create the technology. And so if we look at sound as a technology, we have to have a science that explains how we would be able to use that technology. And that science is really coming first from quantum physics and this understanding that when you break down matter or when you inspect matter at its most fundamental levels, what you're really seeing are just vibrations. And even though Mm. we call sound the range of frequencies that the human ear can hear, you know, if you look at other animals like, uh, you know, dogs and, you know, many other creatures, they hear frequencies that we can't hear. Mm-hmm. So would we say that that isn't sound? So the reality is we're actually bathed in vibrations. And, you know, when we hear them, we call them sound. Um, but it's really this um, silent sound of reverberation mm-hmm. that is the basis of all of nature, including, you know, the human human being. And this is the approach. This is actually what the Siddhas wrote about. They understood it to be like that, um, for life to be like that. And so their technologies then arose from that understanding. Mm-hmm. Now uh, you 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 make you have a metaphor that I love in the book where you talk about how sometimes you feel like you, you know, someone resonates with you or like or what we might call chemistry yeah. that we kind of this idea of resonating together and 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 kind of really feeling each other's for lack of a better term vibration yeah um, and I think we can all agree that uh, that music and uh, and sound can affect our mood certainly but the idea that it could actually affect our well-being on a physical level is something that seems really uh, revolutionary in a lot of ways. And I think for a lot of people who are skeptical, it seems a bit woo-woo. And I think it's really interesting that you, as, as somebody who has a foundation in science and is approaching this from a scientific background. So what I'm, I'm curious to know like what sorts of things, if you're, where do you see this going directionally as a treatment therapy for, for illness? It's a great question. And if you don't mind, I just want to go back to this question of, um, you know, what we think is uh, unbelievable and what we believe, what we consider believable. But sound is something that we create every single day mm-hmm. when we open our mouth, right? And I don't think that there is anybody out there that would say that when they are um, faced with somebody who's yelling at them, that they don't have a biological response to that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so that right there is just, a, it's a direct experience of how sound changes biology. And again, that's just audible sound. And so you can take that further and say, well, okay, that's audible sound. Now, what about all of these other ways of using audible sound Mm -hmm. in a positive way that would also generate a desired biology? Because if it's creating a negative biology, we must have a mechanism in place, right? Um, Otherwise, Mm -hmm. somebody would say something to you and you would hear it, but you would not feel sick in your stomach, Or you wouldn't Mm -hmm. feel like, you know, all the blood is rushing to my head. Like you wouldn't have a biological response. You would Mm -hmm. have 
a thought response, but you wouldn't have a biological response. And so where I'm, you know, hoping that this goes one day is that we stop using sound in an undeliberate way, um, you know, where we're just using it like for entertainment and uh, we're, you know, being exposed to things like leaf blowers without really having an understanding of how it impacts us. And we start using it in an extremely, you know, desired way. Mm -hmm. And so that when we have patients who have conditions like PTSD or anxiety or depression um, that are, you know, being only partly treated with everything that we have available, why not bring in sound therapy? And mm -hmm. beyond just even, you know, music therapy, which already there's been so many studies on the benefits mm -hmm. of that, what if we start looking at it from a more <laughs> scientific standpoint and understanding what frequencies do what in the mm -hmm. body? We already mm -hmm. know that each cell of our body and that different organ systems actually has a resonant frequency. And that means it has a specific song. It makes a, a specific noise. And so if we were to look at that deeper and say, so what is the resonant frequency of a particular organ when it's healthy versus unhealthy? Well, mm. could we, like a tuning fork, bring the tissue in the organ that is unhealthy back into a healthy state through sound? Mm -hmm. So going beyond just you know music therapy, but really starting to get very smart about mm -hmm. the way that we approach diseased organs and diseased tissues through the use of sound. Wow. Mm. It's funny, so when cool. I was, as I was reading your book, I kept being reminded of this anecdote that I'd heard many years ago, and I can't remember the exact details, but it was a woman who was a, um, who was a biologist, and she was studying elephants, mm -hmm. and, uh, and every time she would, the elephants would start to gather around a watering hole in, in, in uh, I think it was in the Kalahari, she would get ready to take photographs and study them and suddenly have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> And then she realized eventually, as she was making, she was recording their sounds that they uh, were communicating with so, so with low level frequencies that were in. She wasn't able to perceive them, but they were so low that they were having an effect on her body. Yes, and and realized that of course the lower level frequencies, which have longer waves, yes, we're, were much more efficient for traveling over long distances. And that's how the elephants were communicating, which I thought was totally hmm. fascinating. Yes, it's exactly right. And, and so if we if we looked more deeply mm -hmm. at the biology, I mean, just think about what we could do beyond, you know, making people go to the bathroom. Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> no, but I, what I think is really interesting is just that there's there's so many sounds that we're not even aware yes. of and how, how our body receives those sounds, yes. what our body does with that information. Mm -hmm. And anyone who's done a, a sound bath knows that there's, yes. there is a, a really therapeutic component to that. There's a therapeutic effect where you just feel, you feel things, you walk away feeling very different than you do when you go into one. No, oh, that's exactly right. And, you know, as we're diving into these ancient records, what we're finding is that they knew this stuff mm -hmm. and they knew it in detail. You know, they knew it mm -hmm. down to like different frequencies result in um, different effects. And that was the use of, you know, what we now know to be mantras. That was the use. They were just frequencies. They were frequencies of nature and they were extremely mathematical. I mentioned in the book that, you know, as uh, scientists looked at some of these mantras when they um, assigned a mathematical code to them, mm -hmm. um, they represented different values in math, such as, you know, pi to the, um, you know, X degree. And so there was a math behind the putting of these sounds together, which were then mm -hmm. used culturally and socially in the form of mantras. 
So chance wow. could be chance could be prescribed essentially yes. for different ailments. That's exactly what we're doing um, at the center. So every day we start with a chant, and I mention it in the book. And my husband and I recorded this on um, the chakra chant because that is something that you can do on a daily basis, and that is something that just opens up all of your energy centers in the body. And so you could use something like that as just kind of your foundational. Um, you know, uh, sound bath. And so then we came up with um, that mantra and started to use that. Um, I, would you like me to sure. share it? I'm yeah, happy yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, show us. So let me first just um, say it out for you and then I'll chant it the way that we do there. Okay. So it's um, Om Krim Mahakali Sarvarogam Nasi Nasi. And what the sounds translate into is all the negativity in the mind and the bo- and the body should be removed. Mm. Um, so the chant, the way that we, you can do this out there out loud, we do it in a group every day mm-hmm. for thirty minutes, um, or you could do this silently. It's Om Krim Mahakali Sarvarogam Nasi Nasi. Wow. So, so this is a chant that. Um, well, it's, can you say again what it means? It means to. to what's the translation? So the translation it's a it's a mantra towards what they would call Mother Nature. Okay. To um, which is essentially an expression of all of life. So it's a chant first of all addressing that aspect of life that is um, related to uh, like the feminine energy, which is part of creation. Mm-hmm. So you're first of all invoking or connecting to that energy. And then saying, um, um, Sarvarogam, all negativity, all disease, mm-hmm. nasi, nasi, represents the vibration for go away, go away. So keep in mind that mm. these mantras, it's not that they are translated into language. These are what the frequencies represent. Right. So when you mm. are saying nasi, nasi to somebody or to something, it's saying mm-hmm. go away, go away. And sarvarogam actually translates, that's a vibration of um, all diseases, all illnesses. And um, om krim, so krim is the bija mantra, that is the seed mantra, which is the fundamental vibration for the entire thing, for mm-hmm. the entire um, chant. And then um, Mahakali is the most ferocious aspect of nature that removes negativity from your life. So the wow. whole thing translates into, you know, um, m- you know, m- Mother Nature, the aspect of of the mother mm-hmm. that removes all negativity, remove all negativity from my mind and my body, yeah. and that's what these sounds are supposed to do. Is they're supposed to bring both your mind and body back into resonance with what is mm-hmm. healthy. Mm-hmm. Can you can you just sort of explain a little bit like how each of us lay people who are not going to sound baths every day mm-hmm. might be able to integrate sound on a just very, very basic level into yeah. our lives in a healing capacity? Absolutely. So at the end of the book, I have kind of a whole how-to chapter. Um, I mean, the easiest way that I suggest is, is mantra meditation. Um, mantras, you know, I gave you a longer um, mm-hmm. mantra, but mantras are usually just, you know, monosyllabic sounds. Um, and you can either do them out loud at first until you become familiar with them. And then, you know, just 20 to 30 minutes a day, just repeat that sound and kind of the, uh, you know, ironic thing about mantras, which are said to be actual sounds from nature is that that sound carries you into a state of silence. 
So I would say that's, you know, the easiest way. But for people who maybe are uncomfortable, don't know how to start with a mantra practice, there's amazing artists out there um, like, uh, you know, Deva Pramel and Mitten who were up for a Grammy nomination this year who their entire work is around um, recording these ancient mantras in a musical way for people to um, experience. So if if you feel uncomfortable about doing it yourself, you could even just, you know, get one of their CDs and listen to it. My husband and I, as I mentioned, we made a CD on the chakra um, meditation that's in the book, and that's just available on iTunes. So you could start however you want. You could either listen to somebody else producing the sounds first, or you could start with your own mantra practice. How much? How long do you think we should do this a day? What's the typical person to get the benefits of it? How long should we do it? We typically say twenty to thirty minutes because remember, you, this the sounds created by your mantra are competing with all of the other sounds that you have right. been exposed to for the day, and something about the twenty to thirty minute mark is enough to combat that influence. So, and, you know, for some people, they can divide it, um, you know, 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes in the evening. But as soon as you start doing this on a regular basis, like I, I can't even imagine going through a day without my meditation practice. As soon as you start doing it, it's really like the same thing as brushing your teeth where you go, oh, mm-hmm. I mean, I just wouldn't feel clean or not taking a shower. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, this is like a bath for your mind because... It changes the way that you begin your day. It changes the way that you interact with your your world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is powerful. It's something that I have done yoga over the years and like the mantras that they start the class with and end the class with. Yeah. What What is, I guess you would know more than anybody, what is the, the science or the meaning behind that? So mantra, and you, you know, you can look at mantra as yoga for the mind. Um, mm-hmm. And so... Um, you know, yoga and mantra practice, like all of these things are interrelated. They're not separate things because all of them are trying to open up your body and mind in some way. So, for example, the yoga class that we have, um, you know, at our center, it includes, um, you know, mantra practice with different postures, as well as different eye movements, as well as um, different hand positions called mudras. And in all of that, what you're trying to do is to engage every aspect of your body and your senses to opening you up, opening the body up and releasing any blocked energy. So the idea behind it is, you know, starting with a sound to help open up, um, you know, the body and the mind. And in the end, once you are in a more open state to be receiving that vibration. Hmm. So it's all tied in together. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting that um, in, as I was reading in the book, you were, you were talking about how you sort of came into this world coming from an Indian family, first generation American, um, and your mother kind of rediscovering yeah. traditional Ayurvedic medicine or practices through meditation because of physical illness she was having here and the whole idea that that a lot of these traditional practices in India had been kind of forgotten for the past hundred years because of colonial rule in yeah. India and and how you were introduced as a, I think you were like seven or eight years old and you were introduced to meditation. 
and that became a part of your life. Can you tell us a little bit about how you how that sort of you rediscovered these the, these roots? I think it's really interesting. Yeah, what's what's ironic is if my mom would not have moved to America, I wouldn't be doing the work that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I mean, we joke about that at home because she wasn't thrilled about the idea that uh-huh. you know her 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 successful American daughter was moving back to <laughs> India <laughs> to give up being a neurologist. Yeah, yeah, to be giving up you know all of the life that I had, yeah. had bu- built here. But the reality is. Um, if we would have stayed in India, she probably would never have been exposed to any of this because mm-hmm. it was through a physician that um, was treating her for a thyroid condition at the time shortly a, after. A Western physician. A Western physician, yeah. not even an integrated physician. Mm-hmm. I, th- I really feel like this is when fate kind of stepped in. Uh-huh. Um, but a physician who was treating her for a thyroid condition and knew that it was a stress of moving to a new country, mm-hmm. you know, adapting to, to a new culture, not having the same extended family support. Um, and so and he said, you know, instead of starting all of these medications, let's just try meditation. And so in six months, her thyroid condition was completely reversed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a mantra meditation. It was transcendental meditation. And so she immediately had my sister and I, you know, do it. And that really it profoundly changed the way that we interacted with the world because mm-hmm. we now had this safe space to go to where we can erase the stresses of the day. And it really changed the way that we were reacting mm-hmm. to the world. There was like a buffer around us that protected us from overreacting to any kind of negativity. Um, and had I not started that, I'm, I'm really convinced that my entire professional life would have gone in another direction mm-hmm. because because of the meditation, because meditation is a part of Ayurvedic medicine, um, you know, she then introduced us to that and then yoga. And so eventually as a physician, it would have only taken really like some kind of a small life event, like having migraine headaches mm-hmm. for me to go, wait a minute. You know, I had this um, rich world of um, medical tools that I was exposed to. Why am I not using them now that I'm a physician? Yeah. And mm-hmm. I thought it was it was ironic that your mother's illness kind of coincided with this moment of of what we consider realizing the American dream and yes. and <laughs> having means and and a, a fancy car and a fancy house, yeah. and yet at the same time that collided with this with this failing health. Yeah, and it, I've I really noticed it on this trip back, and I find I feel I'm very very fortunate to be a part of two cultures. I love being an American, mm-hmm. but I also love having this life out in rural India. And what really struck me about coming back here was um, the simplicity of the life that I lived there, how much that fosters health. Mm-hmm. That on mm. a daily basis, um, you know, I had seven outfits in my closet because my closet can't fit anymore. You know, and it's not right. really even a closet. It's, it's <laughs> more of a, you know, like just a space that we've decided is, is a closet. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and you can only fit seven outfits. And so there's something that happens when your life becomes very simple like that. I only have three pairs of shoes. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're out in rural India. So my um, daily commute, my traffic jam is the two ox carts and the <laughs> temple elephant that are <laughs> wow. passing by that can take up to five to ten minutes sometimes. And so the simplicity of, of that life and like our food is unbelievably simple. Um, when, when I came here and just, you know, driving around, you know, in L.A. and um, just all of the choices that right. were suddenly available, like going into a grocery store where there were the all of these. paralysis of all these options. Yeah, yeah. And I realized that it really pulls you out of the moment. It pulls you out of your body. It creates just a lot of mental energy. And it's a bit exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah. 
there's also some anxiety that am I making the right choice if there are all these other choices? Yeah, like when you only have one choice, it's always the right choice. Exactly, exactly, yeah. (laughs) It's always the right choice when there's only one type of ketchup for you. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) So I could, uh, am I correct to assume there's no moves to Los Angeles anytime soon for you then? You know, no, and I'm I'm very, very open to life. And I'll tell you what I found um, when I first, you know, landed here, which I was so excited because I was so excited to be back in California. Mm-hmm. Like are I said, you, are I, your parents still here? Yeah, the, yeah. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I and I was excited to see my family. But the first 24 hours, just the amount of stimuli that I was bombarded with, mm-hmm. I really felt like just kind of hiding like under the covers. It was just too much. There was just too much mm-hmm. like stuff. And it's not that India doesn't have sounds, but they're all natural sounds, right. at least like where I'm at. That's not true for all of mm-hmm, India, but right. where I'm at. And, uh, you know, at first my response was like, let me just get right back on that plane. Um, But I realized that, um, you know, people here needed this perspective and that um, for as much as we do have here, and we we do, we have so much and we're such creative beings, we lack this other perspective of simplicity and connection, you know, to the self. And so then as I just started to feel that, overwhelming sense of compassion I got so excited about hearing here you know being here and that connection with compassion to me really is like a connection to nature you know to divinity to the self to the soul whatever you want to call it and Mm -hmm. that made me more interested in like possibly coming back like you know once a year just to kind of share more about what we're doing there because I'm realizing we're starving for those experiences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have all of these other amazing experiences, but we're starving for those unbelievably simple experiences of just being a human being. Yeah. We've talked with folks on the podcast before um, about things like the new Japanese tradition of forest bathing yeah. and and being present in nature. And I hadn't really, until I was reading your book, I hadn't really thought about how a component of that, because it, I know as somebody who loves to bicycle and spend time outside and to, to hike and be in nature, it's extremely therapeutic for me. Um, but I hadn't thought until I was reading this book that actually part of what I'm absorbing are all the sounds of nature. Exactly. Not only the not only right. the sign, you know, the visual aspect, the component in the fresh air and all of that, but also the the actual reverberation of sound. It's exactly yeah, right. The frequency of nature. It's a frequency yeah. of nature. All the things you're you're hearing and all of the things that you're not hearing. Um, in the ancient traditions, the color green is um, associated with the feeling of love. It's associated with, you know, the heart chakra. And I think it's beautiful that that's mainly what you experience in nature. And it's just this reminder to us in our busy lives that we're so unbelievably mm-hmm. loved. We were birthed out of love. You know, mm-hmm. our basic resonance is one of love. And that's what nature is constantly reminding us of. Amazing. Mm. You have this this phrase in the book, it's a chapter of the book, actually. You, you say space is not empty. Yes. Um, <laughs> can I, I just think that's beautiful. Before we go, can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, you asked probably the most difficult concept to explain <laughs> at the end. A little quantum physics, oh, Yeah, maybe. just a little yeah. bit of quantum to, to physics and, yeah, a little bit of this to the records. Um, but in a nutshell, it's that we're actually bathing in this material and we don't quite know yet how to describe it. And it was described by the ancients and the Siddha tradition, you know, the rishis of the Ayurvedic medicine tradition, um, but also, you know, by the Greek philosophers and now more recently by quantum physics physicists, 
that there is something that we are bathed in. And it would be a little bit like a fish in water, not realizing that it was surrounded by water because we're constantly bathed in it. And this material, and it is an actual material, it's a very subtle material, it connects everything in space all at once. So it's kind of without time and space in that sense. And the vibrations that we are able to use as human beings to connect with it are sound. It is a material that reverberates sound. It reverberates all vibrations, but in our ability to make sound, we reverberate and send messages out into that material um, all the time everywhere, meaning you know it's independent of any kind of space-time continuum. And that, I think, is, is number one very powerful when you try to explain to people why their thoughts matter and why their speech matters, if you can explain it that everything in the universe is hearing you talk and speak, I think you would choose your words and thoughts <laughs> more wisely. Yeah. But that's essentially the material that you know the Siddhas became acquainted with. And from that, they learned how to you know, manipulate isn't the right word because they never manipulated nature, but they learned how to work with nature. They, mm -hmm. they learned how to um, connect with nature. And they used sound as the language, um, you know, for creating um, what they wanted um, through that material. Beautiful. Thank you guys for joining our conversation with Dr. Kulreet Chaudhary. I, I was really into this. I mean, I think what I really liked about it more than anything is that I, I'm kind of like a woo-woo skeptic, particularly when it comes to sound baths, even though I've done sound baths and mm -hmm. really had some bizarre experiences and enjoyed them. Um, mm -hmm. I still have this, the skeptic in me is like, is this really healing me? Um, right. And her book is pretty amazing. I mean, it really, it really presents a lot of, uh, a lot of compelling information about the impact that, that sound and resonance has on our, on our biology. It's amazing. Yeah, it is. I, I think her, with her coming to the space from a, a neurologist standpoint, from a scientific Western medicine standpoint, showing us this emerging science and blending it with this ancient tradition. I think in so many ways, science is catching up with antiquity, that you have all these ancient civilizations that were doing things that now science is kind of confirming, okay, they may they did maybe know exactly the mechanisms back then, how this was working, but it was working. Uh, and these are things that you don't have to have either or. You don't have to pick Western medicine or complementary alternative things. You can have the best of both worlds. And that's kind of what she's advocating in, in the book. Yeah, you can learn more about Dr. Chaudhary at drkulreetchaudhary.com. That's K U L. R-E-E-T-C-H-A-U-D-H-A-R-Y.com. And be sure to check out a copy of her new book, Sound Medicine, which is out now. Got a question you'd like us to answer? The Goop team is keeping a running list for us, so just hit them up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. At the end of every episode, we'll be answering a question from one of you guys. If you have a question about us or about men and wellness or really anything else is on your mind, just let us know. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies and ways to approach health and well-being. And I love to talk about food and cooking and, well, reality is anything. I just love to talk. So send your questions over to the Goop team on Instagram or Facebook. As Goop likes to say, nothing is off limits. All right, guys, it's time for another Ask Me Anything. And this question is from Jerome. Jerome asks, who are your dream dinner party guests? Seamus, what are yours? 
Um, you know, it's funny. I've been asked this question a lot as a chef. Um, mm. Let's see if I can give some different answers. Uh, well, uh, I guess I'm I'm guessing it's not limited to people that are that are just currently alive. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say more than that. But I would love to have had John Coltrane, who's an amazing um, jazz saxophone mm. player, uh, to dinner. Um, let's see who else. Uh, Pablo Picasso. Um, mm. And Michelle Obama, I think those would be that. That would make for a very interesting dinner conversation. Yes, it would. <laughs> I, yeah. I would have you? to say, if I had to pick like my favorite people, both current and in the past, I would say Barack Obama would be on my list. Not to take from you, no, but we'll all. get the Obamas we'll in, our, yeah. in, our, in our dinner party. Um, and I would say I'm a big fan of FDR and his World War II history. I, I, I would say mm-hmm. FDR, and uh, probably. If I could go biblical, I would say like King Solomon. I, I love the stories of him. Cool. So that, that, that would be the three for me. Awesome. That's it for today. Thanks for hanging out with us. Will and I would love to know what you think about Goop Fellas. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to goop.com slash goopfellas. And we hope you'll be here again next Wednesday. Talk soon.